Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. Three months from now, six police officers in Baltimore are scheduled to go to trial for the arrest and death of Freddie Gray, which sparked protests in the city this past April. First peaceful, then increasingly violent. Protests continue in Baltimore. We begin this hour in Baltimore, where riots have broken out shortly after. We've been watching violence on the streets of Baltimore. And witnessing the whole thing with his camera was West Baltimore native Devin Allen. Devin was then 26 years old, just a year older than Freddie Gray, and he lived minutes from where Gray was arrested. Devin was an amateur photographer, but it wasn't long before his striking black and white images went viral. One of them showing a black man sprinting in the foreground with a police line forming in the background wound up on the cover of Time magazine. Well, basically, when you first um, come in, the first picture you're going to see is, of course, the Times cover. Devin and I are at the Reginald F. Lewis Museum of Maryland African American History and Culture in Baltimore, where workers are putting the finishing touches on Devin's very first solo exhibition, opening this weekend. That had to be the first picture you see. That's the most iconic. That's the one everyone knows me for. Most of the photographs in Devin Allen Awakenings in a New Light are 20 feet tall. Next to many of them, you'll see these blank black spaces created with chalkboard paint so visitors can write down their feelings and reactions. You know, we did chalkboard walls because the whole exhibit is about informing, learning, creating conversation. One corner of the room features a row of smaller photos with no captions, showing a timeline of what Alan watched unfold. One image shows feet stomping on a car windshield. Another shows an African-American man kneeling on the sidewalk before a homemade cross. A prompt on the wall reads, where were you? As Devin explains, he was everywhere during the protests because, to put it simply, he felt he had to be. That just came automatically as soon as I found out about Freddie Gray. I knew the protest was going to happen, and I'm a protester. I protested for Mike Brown, Trayvon Martin, you know, so it hit home. It was only right that I get out and document. It wasn't no question about it. This is my city. I would have felt terrible if I wasn't out there taking pictures and showing people the real essence of Baltimore because I knew on the media side they were only going to pick up the negative because I know how strong my people are here and I understand how much anger here because I was once one of those angry people. So I knew it was potential for riots and a lot of you know aggression being released. How do you feel your pictures are different from what we see in the professional media? They might not be the best picture, the sharpest, but I just think my pictures have a certain type of emotion to it because I care. I think my pictures are very passionate, you know, and then I'm not out getting paid, so it's not, I'm not out there looking for that one shot or I don't have any, you know, criteria that I'm trying to fulfill. I'm just out here trying to tell a story and not be biased while I'm telling it. I'm trying to tell it from different sides. I understand, you know, my people. I also understand how people from the outside looking in are having dealt with the same situations. Now, when you were growing up in West Baltimore, what was your view of the police force? Mixed reviews. You know, I'm going to say it was about 60% I dislike, but I played basketball, so one of my basketball coaches was a police officer. I knew some good ones, but then it was those times that I have been harassed, you know, I have been maced before by a police officer. You know, I have been tased before. Some things was my fault, so I can't even be mad about that. But for the most part, it would be situations where I wasn't doing anything wrong. And, you know, one instance is like I'm coming from school and the police dumps out my book bag, you know, looking for drugs, looking for um, basically a description of a black male with, at the time I had long hair, so I had dreads. And I didn't even fit the description. He just was messing with me. 
But then I try to tell people, like, these people are human. They're not Terminator. They're not RoboCop. They have emotions. They have good and bad days. So some days you might run into a police officer. He might speak to you. Next day he might, you know, harass you and then write you a ticket. And some days he might not feel like writing a ticket, so he lets you pass. You got to remember, these people are human. And I think people forget that. They are humans with a lot of responsibility. So what do we know about the police officer that's all the way on the far side of the wall over there, this African-American man who's in full uniform, his eyes tearing up. Do we know anything about him? Um, I saw him, you know, strapping up, all the police strapped up because stuff were, be, were, were being thrown. And um, family and friends, um, Freddie Gray, who actually led the protest to Camden Yards where the police were, we were pretty pretty close in the same vicinity. And he wasn't, I watched him put his helmet on, he was fine. He didn't start tearing up until one of the young brothers basically said how he felt and how he felt about the police. And you gotta remember, this is a black man, so you never know what type of conflict is going inside his heart, being on, you know, he has a stand against his people, you know, and he probably understand. But that picture is like very important. You know, it shows the emotion that these cops are still human. The fact that there isn't a whole lot of text in this exhibit. We have these photos that are like 20 feet tall, wheat pasted to the wall, and not really any captions explaining them. Can you talk about that choice? Because you have to come up with your own caption. I want to know how you feel. The reason why I did this art show and I picked this place, you know, and we blew the pictures up so big is because we want to create that dialogue. Like, it's very important. I need to get some police officers in here. I need to get some protesters in here, you know, and force them to talk. I want to get that awkward moment where, you know, a police officer might be, you know, looking at the Times cover and a guy who might have rioted or a female who might have partaken some looting. They can sit and, you know, bump elbows, you know, get into an argument. No, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with this. But you're talking. You might come to some common ground. Because the storm is not over. You know, we still have to go through the trials when those, when those things happen. And y'all saw what we were capable of. And that was just our young kids. And that was one neighborhood. You know, I want people to continue. Don't just, you know, let us fall to the, to the back since we're no longer in the, in the spotlight as much. We're still here. We're still fighting, organizing things. There's still a lot of issues going on. And when those trials come, we're definitely going to need a lot of support, you know, because if we don't get justice, Lord knows what's, what can happen. That was Baltimore native Devin Allen, whose first solo photo exhibit runs July 10th through December 7th at the Reginald F. Lewis Museum in Baltimore. You can get a sneak preview of the show on our website, metroconnection.org. And this weekend, you can meet Devin and hear him talk about his experiences following the death of Freddie Gray. The event starts Saturday at 1 at the Lewis Museum. You'll find a link at metroconnection.org. Our next story keeps us in Baltimore, where, as you know, the national and international media spotlight was shining strong for a few weeks in April and May. Hordes of reporters and camera operators followed protesters and rioters through the streets. Journalists were asking all sorts of questions about the root causes of the unrest. But for residents of Baltimore, they don't define their city by the conflicts we've seen on TV. Reporter Hans Anderson is himself a Baltimore resident. He recently spent a few days traversing neighborhoods and talking to people about their town. He brings us this audio postcard, starting with the auction of an apartment building in the West Baltimore neighborhood of Upton. 
All right, we are going to get started with our public auction sale this morning. Good morning again. Today is Monday, June 29, 2015. The time is 12 noon. I live here because this is where my, my, my roots is from here. This is where I'm from. You, you, you go back to where you're from. You don't leave your roots. It's like you take a tree up. You can't not take that tree up from the roots. If you take the roots up, it's going to come back. Something's going to come back. I know what Baltimore is. You can make it here. This town here is a town you can make it. $71,000 bid. I have 71. Do we hear 75? We've been right here. I've been right here for 40, 44 years at least. And so uh, he older than me, so I know he's been right here for 50 because we know each other for 40 years. Fighting in the alley right there. That was like, that was our stomping ground up the streets. We used to fight the day and play tomorrow. I wasn't no guns. It used to be horse stable back there. Right. Tell about that part, right? Yeah, the horse stable. houses back, back there up the street. Room of court. This is a great deal today, guys. I have $75,000. Black owned. This is a black owned neighborhood. There's a store on the corner called Miss Edie's. You can get penny cookies and penny candy out of there. They tore it down. Take a dollar. A dollar gets you a 60 cent cup of two scoops of ice cream. fresh ice cream and 40 cookies for a dollar. Yeah, Baltimore. I have brisk tea, 50 cents a can. You got water in it? Yes, I have. Give me water. Yes, I'm a vendor. Mm -hmm. Water, tea, sodas, chips, and candy. I'm a born and raised right down here, over across from the Oriole Stadium, and the house is still there. 524 South Packard. Final notice on the property. $87,000. $87,500. $87,500. $87,500. Is there any advance? All the history guard. This is, this is a historical town. This is a historical town. Yeah. Look at these places. These condos right, right here. I just Not told him, I can tell him. You know, you got to go and get the history of this place. They tore all the history down on Pennsylvania Avenue. From the 1700 block all the way down into the 1400 block of Pennsylvania Avenue, all the history is gone. The Royal 380, the Mac, the Frolics Bar, the Red Fox, the Bucket of Blood, all of those places is gone. It's nothing but fields and lots there now. People love to crochet, knit, bake cakes, plant flowers. I just love to fish. <laughs> you know, you catch perch, rockfish, Catfish, you know, different types of fish. Out here, you won't catch not one thing. Come in the next day, catch nothing but fish. Well, like I said, I'm just killing time since I stopped working. That's all I do. You see a lot of people in Baltimore sitting on the streets, you know. If they could, they would come down here and fish, but they, their feet probably hurt because they old, you know, walking. I got neuropathy in my derm, heel spur in my bottom of my foot, and I got neuropathy, all the nerve damage all over my body. So, yeah, but I still uh, wobble. You make it out here, fish a little bit. I'm the founder of FOXO. FOXO is an acronym that stands for Fraternal Order of Ex-Offenders. All of our members have been there and done that. You understand me? Crime in America's traditional is cherry pie. And there's so many deaths, not just Mr. Freddie Gray. And my heart goes out to all the families who have lost loved ones with, with all this violence on the streets of Baltimore. At one point in time in my life, I faced 140 years. Why am I giving you this kind of information? Because our communities misinformation because of misinformation. But they do need to 
not only look at the police department, but they need to look at the community as a whole. In most cases, um, if you live a certain kind of life and you mind your business and you stay in a certain kind of lane, you're not going to get murdered in most cases. So I'm glad that we have the police and most police are okay. We don't talk about, we continue to talk about police brutality. If I brutalize you and you brutalize me, that's criminality. Don't, can't you tell the stuff is in my DNA chromosome genetic material? I don't have to read this stuff. I live this stuff. I'm an expert, and I'm not the only one. There was experts before me, and they're going to be experts after me. People need resources. That's what caused people to change. The greatest capital, everybody in there talking about money, they talk about resources. You know what the greatest capital is? Human capital. That audio postcard was produced by Hans Anderson. You can see a map of all the places he visited on our website, metroconnection.org. After the break, as more charter schools pop up across the country, a certain state in our region only has a handful. Charter applicants have largely quit even asking for permission to uh, develop their charter ideas and charter schools. We'll find out why as Metro Connection continues on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Coming up, using music to bring back lost speech. We'll hear how people who've suffered strokes are finding words through song. But first, we'll head to the wilds of Maryland's eastern shore. That's where agriculture inspectors recently found the culprit that's killed millions of trees elsewhere in North America. It's called the emerald ash borer. The small green wood-chewing beetle is native to Asia and was first discovered in the United States in 2002. Thirteen years later, it's already laid waste to more than 99% of ash trees in some forests in the Midwest. The invasive pest has been attacking Maryland's ash trees since 2003. And this summer, the bug was discovered in four more counties in the Old Line State. Environment reporter Jonathan Wilson brings us the latest in the battle against the borer. State Agricultural Inspector Steve Bell is getting ready to reset the insect trap that first detected the ash borer on the eastern shore earlier this summer. It's just off a residential road near the southern tip of Kent Island. Pheromones on the trap attract bugs, and antifreeze in a collection cup kills and preserves them so surveyors like Bell can see what's been buzzing and crawling around the ash trees. And I'm seeing a little bit of everything. I'm seeing, oh, there's some emerald ash borer. All right, let me see if I can get these here. There's a very distinctive emerald color that, that just is very distinctive. And this little beetle is what's causing all these trees to die. A mature emerald ash borer looks a little like a firefly that's been spray painted green and then dusted with gold powder. Adults chew on leaves, but it's the larvae that do the most damage. They chew a maze of destruction under the bark of a tree, a process that can kill an ash in just a few years. This 
beetle does not discriminate. It'll just as soon infest a swamp ash or a, a, a green ash or a white ash in a swampy area just as quickly as it would infest a, and begin to feed on a tree on, on a mountain ridge out in Garrett County. U.S. Department of Agriculture scientists believe the beetle first came to the state's hidden in common wood packaging products. And Bell thinks it's unlikely that the bug flew across the bay to get to the eastern shore. He suspects it first got here by hitching a ride on a vehicle or in a load of firewood. So in here I'm seeing just two or three here, but I know when we checked this uh, trap on uh, June 8th that it had uh, over a dozen. So it's well established here. We assume that the uh, females already laid its eggs and the process has started whereby this tree will more than likely die. Back across the Chesapeake, Baltimore arborist Eric Deal is tasked with making sure the state's largest city has a plan to deal with the emerald ash borer. Inspectors discovered the bug in the city limits last summer. In a field where the forestry department stores all the wood is chopped down after removing damaged or rotted trees, a pile of ash sits apart from the rest as a precaution. Right now, the stack of branches and tree trunks is about 10 feet high and 20 yards long. So you expect this pile to get a lot bigger? <coughs> oh, yes. Yeah, it'll, it'll, this is just beginning. It's going to get huge, much, much more than this. Unlike D.C., Baltimore is rife with ash trees, and many on public property. A survey by the city revealed that about 9% of the city's tree stock is made up of ash. That's about 200,000 trees that could be destroyed by the emerald ash borer, including 5,000 ash trees that line city streets. It's catastrophic. Deal says most of the city's ash trees are in woodland areas. It isn't cost-effective or even possible to save most of those trees. But even handling the 5,000 street trees is a major challenge. Some infested trees have already been removed, but others are in line for a chemical treatment to ward off the emerald ash borer. Chemically treating a tree that's infested or at risk can cost anywhere from $100 to $400, depending on the size of the tree. Do the math, and you surpass a million dollars in cost fairly quickly. Deal's entire department only has a $3 million budget. Plus, a treatment is only good for two to three years. So Deal is having to make some tough choices. Gosh, if we have to choose, nobody likes to choose one tree from another, especially if they're healthy. But right now, based on our current funding, we're looking at saving the larger ash trees. If there's a note of resignation in Deal's voice, it's a note echoed by state leaders. After the emerald ash borer was discovered on the eastern shore, Maryland Agriculture Secretary Joe Bartenfelder called the pest aggressive and unrelenting, while also vowing to continue to fight to protect the state's ash trees. As for State Inspector Steve Bell, he says the state is doing all it can to fight this beetle, but he's not seeing victory on the horizon. Generally speaking, it's, it's, I'd have to err on the side of uh, pessimism just because of the amount of dead trees I see and how rapidly it occurs. Bell says there's some promise in the breeding of parasitic wasps that have already been introduced in some areas in Maryland. These wasps, another Asian import, are natural enemies of the emerald ash borer and use the beetle's larvae as food for their own young. But it will likely be years before the wasps are numerous enough to make a real dent in the ash borer population. The next step in the fight is a simple one. The USDA will likely add the entire state of Maryland to the federal ash quarantine. It bans the movement of ash products outside the quarantine area, which now covers all or part of 25 states. I'm Jonathan Wilson.
We turn now from the environment to education. When it comes to public charter schools, conservatives tend to love them, while liberals worry they're part of a push to privatize public education. So why then does Virginia, the reddest state in our region, have just a handful of charter schools? Maryland, on the other hand, has about 50. D.C., more than 100. In the Commonwealth, charter advocates have been frustrated by a system they say is rigged against them. Now, not only is a movement afoot to amend the state constitution and make it easier to open a charter school, but some local school boards are starting to support charters. Virginia reporter Michael Pope brings us this story from Loudoun County, which will soon open its second charter school. So um, school's closed, obviously. That's Rebecca Fuller. She's opening the door to a 1960s-era modular building that has a large circular common space in the middle surrounded by classrooms. She's behind the effort to turn this building into the newest charter school in Virginia. I'm one of three children, and my parents exercised school choice before that was a phrase. They sent us uh, some of the time to private school, some of the time to public school. As a mother of Loudoun County school children, she says she thinks all parents should have more choices. I recognize that that, that I was very lucky that my parents were able to exercise that much choice. And I think that that shouldn't be something that's available to the privileged few. It should be something that's available to everybody. In many states, charter schools can be authorized by a state board or a nonprofit organization. Some states allow universities or even mayors to create charters. But Virginia is one of just five states where the charter must be approved by local school boards. They're often reluctant to give up money and authority, though, which might explain why the state has only seven charter schools. Loudoun County School Board member Brenda Sheridan opposed the charter. By supporting this application, we are condoning the principal being hired by an all-volunteer board with no educational experience required for those board members. There is no requirement for the principal... Sheridan lost that fight, though. All the other school board members voted in favor of the new charter. Although school boards across Virginia are typically reluctant to approve charter schools, several members of the Loudoun County School Board ran on a platform of expanding school choice. Republican State Senator Mark Obenshane says he appreciates what the school board members in Loudoun are doing, although he says the rest of the state has been too slow to catch on. He says a majority of the larger charter school organizations don't even bother with the Commonwealth. They have abandoned Virginia. None of the national charter organizations and charter schools are coming and asking for permission to uh, open schools. Open Shane is widely thought to be the leading Republican candidate to run for governor in 2017. He introduced a constitutional amendment earlier this year that would take the power to create new charter schools out of the hands of local school boards and put it in the hands of the Virginia Board of Education. He says even smaller charters have stopped applying to school boards. Charter applicants have largely quit even asking for permission to uh, develop their charter ideas and charter schools because they're so used to school boards saying no. Passing a constitutional amendment in Virginia is not easy. It requires two separate votes of two different general assemblies, meaning members are up for election between the votes. Then it goes to a statewide referendum for voters to approve. I'm not voting for that. It's, it's, it's a Northern Virginia ripoff. I guarantee it. That's Delegate Dave Albo, a Republican from Springfield. I'm telling you right now, What's exactly going to happen is this law is going to pass. The state's going to say, Fairfax County, build a school and you pay for it. If they want a charter school so bad, then they can pay for it. 
Loudoun County School Board member Jeff Morse agrees. Although he's one of the leading advocates for charter schools in the region, he also believes appointed officials in Richmond should not be given the power to control local tax dollars. They don't know the communities that are involved. They don't understand the local nuances of the education that's provided and perhaps the site. They're stepping outside of their comfort zone and they're trying to apply this across a state, which is broad. The State Board of Education recently approved a science and technology school for Loudoun County. But the charter application was denied by the local school board because its members said they didn't like the curriculum or the financial model. If there are going to be a lot more charter schools popping up, for the state to be involved in the selection of charter schools, uh, over, overriding the community is, uh, is something I don't think is, is feasible or reasonable. Rebecca Fuller, the charter applicant, says the whole point of having a charter school is that it would give the school a sense of independence from the school board. She says she wants to create a model for project-based learning that would use taxpayer dollars to fund the school, even though the principal would not be an employee of the school board. They give us an opportunity to uh, have our own management structure. Um, And so the vision and mission of the school is run by our board of directors as opposed to by the school board. Voters will have an opportunity to weigh in this November because every seat of the General Assembly will be up for election. Candidates will be asked about their position on charter schools, and if lawmakers approve the amendment again next year, voters will have the final say when it appears on a statewide ballot as a referendum in November of 2016. I'm Michael Pope. Now, time to knock on a few doors with our ongoing journey around the region. This week on Door to Door, we'll visit D.C.'s Petworth neighborhood and Old Town Laurel, Maryland. My name is Juan Jara. I live in the Petworth neighborhood. I've been here for 40 years. The Petworth neighborhood is in Washington, D.C., in Northwest. It's bordered by the Old Soldier's Home in Rock Creek Church, up north to Emerson Street and south to New Hampshire Avenue. The neighborhood was built in the early 1900s, and it was a suburb of Washington, D.C. At the time, they weren't building Victorians any longer, like they did in DuPont Circle and Logan Circle. And a number of architects came to this area, Wardman being one of them. He built these two-story houses with a front porch, and that was the characteristic of the Wardman-style house. There are multiple rows of the same style house built by different architects. The Lincoln Cottage is just up the street from our house and we've visited so many times because when we have visitors from out of town, we always take them to experience the wonderful Lincoln Cottage. It was a 30-minute carriage ride from the White House to the cottage and he spent about 30% of his presidency at the cottage. My name is Jana Levin. I live in the center of the universe. I live in Old Town Laurel, Maryland. I've lived in Old Town Laurel for about 20 years now. Old Town Laurel is located halfway between Baltimore and Washington, almost exactly halfway 
back when George Washington was president, he used it as a stagecoach stop because it was exactly halfway. The history of Old Town Laurel dates back to before its incorporation in the 1800s. We were a mill town. We had a mill, we're right on the Patuxent River, and it was a thriving mill. That's how the town developed, as factory towns do. The mill comes first, then the houses, then the main street, which is where I live, then the churches, and then the schools. And in the 1800s, it was incorporated into its own city. I love that everybody knows your name. I love that you wave at everybody. You run into people at the grocery store. You run into people at restaurants. You know the people that are waiting on you because they're somebody's child at a restaurant. It's just very, it, it feels very homey, yet not so small town that you can't get anywhere. I, I can't imagine what would ever get me to move. We heard from Jana Levin in Old Town Laurel and Juan Hara in Petworth. If you'd like us to knock on your door so you can tell us about your neighborhood, send an email to metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. In a minute, a chef who brought fresh local food to members of D.C.'s homeless community hangs up his apron. He deserves a lot of credit for really a transformation of the way Miriam's Kitchen cooks. And using the power of music to unleash lost language. We can take functional phrases like, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, set that to music, gradually teach them to sing that, and then transition back to speech. That and more coming up on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. Day in and day out, we are constantly surrounded by music. We hear it while shopping at the grocery store, while working out at the gym, And of course, we hear it every time we queue up songs on our computer or smartphone or good old-fashioned radio. Now, in all those cases, we think of music more or less as entertainment, right? Even if it's just playing in the background. But for people with certain language or cognitive difficulties, music can be far more than that. It can actually be a tool that rewires the brain, helping treat such conditions as Parkinson's disease, Huntington's disease, traumatic brain injuries, and strokes. As music therapist Tracy Bowdish explains, many stroke patients have great difficulty with speech. They know exactly what they want to say, but they're not able to find the words to say it. So imagine you have a word on the tip of your tongue and you can't get it out. And imagine all of your words are that way. But with a practice known as neurologic music therapy, before long you could find those words by singing them. Because that stroke is in a very specific area of the brain, and because we use more of our brains when we sing than we do when we speak, often those people still retain the ability to sing. Tracy Bowdish works at the Centera Music and Medicine Center in Norfolk, Virginia, one of the few such centers in the country. To get patients talking again, she starts with helpful everyday phrases. Like, 
I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I need to get up. And uses music to make them stick. So let's say she's teaching a patient that first phrase. I'm hungry. She starts by making up a simple melody to go along with the words. I'm hungry, I'm hungry. She then hums that melody for her patient while tapping his hand to provide extra rhythmic cues. <laughs> Once the patient starts humming along, Tracy adds in the words. I'm hungry, I'm hungry. And once the patient starts singing those words, Tracy starts fading the music out. I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. Next comes the big test, whether the patient can find meaning in the phrase and use it in context. So when prompted with a question like, What would you say if you wanted something to eat? Ideally, he would reply, I'm hungry. Though, at a recent session with 70-year-old Jim Bob Rodriguez, who suffered a stroke and has been working with Tracy Bowdish about a year now, What would you say if your stomach was growling? Tracy gets an unexpected reply. I want to eat. I want to eat, he says, beaming from his wheelchair. Tracy couldn't be more thrilled. That is fabulous. Huh? You know why that's so fabulous? Why? Because we practiced I'm hungry, <laughs> and you said I want to eat. <laughs> well, you know what that means? <laughs> that means you're using your own words and not my words. <laughs> and that makes my day. Someone else whose day it makes is Jim Bob's wife of 40-plus years, Sandy. Jim Bob can't use the right side of his body, and he's hard of hearing, but Sandy says her husband has come a long way. When we brought him home from the rehab, nursing home, he was on a feeding tube. Uh, he couldn't do anything for himself. Sandy had heard how Arizona Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords used music therapy to regain speech after being shot in the head. So Sandy was hopeful when she heard about Tracy Bowdish at Sentara. One year later, not only is Jim Bob incorporating all the phrases he's learned in his sessions. He comes up with things like, Ooh, you feel sweaty or you feel hot or, you know, and it always takes us aback because we're not expecting it. Though there is one phrase Sandy has come to expect and appreciate more than words can say. Every night he tells me he loves me and he does it very meaningfully. So that's always very special to know that. Dr. Kamal Shamali founded the Sentara Music and Medicine Center in 2010. The neurologist says because music is so commonplace in our world. You know, music is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It doesn't always get its due as a viable tool for helping people like Jim Bob Rodriguez. Instead, it's often overlooked in favor of other more well-known therapies. We have examples especially those stroke patients with the rehabilitation of language, where we were able to uh, bring back language after four weeks, let's say, of music therapy, when 20 weeks of speech therapy did not bring back the language. And yet, most insurance companies still don't reimburse music therapy. So many hospitals have yet to implement it. Why would physical therapy, speech therapy, occupational therapy be reimbursed without any problems? And music therapy, which is sometimes more effective, not be reimbursed, you know, doesn't make sense. That's why the center charges just $40 for each session of neurologic music therapy. Sentara, which runs a network of nonprofit hospitals in the region, incurs the remainder of the cost.
which makes it easier for patients like Jimba Rodriguez to come in on a regular basis. He's had about 40 sessions with Tracy Bowdish now, and in honor of his upcoming anniversary with Sandy on August 1st. This one's a hard one. I want to try it, though. Today, they're working on a new phrase. First, Tracy hums it. Then they hum it together. And once Jim Bob can hum it by himself, very good. It's time for the words. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. After Jim Bob sings the phrase on his own, Happy anniversary. Tracy fades out the music. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. That was very, very good. <laughs> the next step is to add in a very special phrase Jim Bob has already learned. I love you, Sandy. Happy anniversary. Very good. We're going to work our way up to that. You can see Tracy Bowdish and Jim Bob Rodriguez working together on our website, metroconnection.org. You can also hear them singing one of Jim Bob's favorite songs. And neurologic music therapy is just one of the services offered at the Sentara Music and Medicine Center. You can see a video of Dr. Shamali discussing the music medicine and performance medicine programs. Again, that's metroconnection.org. We'll turn now to a whole different kind of music, the kind you might hear on a street corner or outside a metro station. We're talking about busking. Lauren Ober introduces us to a group of musicians that's made Al Fresco Entertaining its full-time job. It's 9.30 in the morning, and the temperature in downtown D.C. is already creeping toward 90 degrees. The humidity makes it feel like you just stepped out of a hot shower. Steve Belk is completely drenched. Yeah, you know, I look at it as a workout. Instead of going to the gym, I can ride out here and I work out. (laughs) His workout for the day is playing the trombone for tourists outside the White House. Belk is the band leader for the Spread Love Band, a group of brass musicians busking downtown. For the six guys in the band, this gig is full time. About six months ago, they realized they could make enough money on the street to ditch their day jobs. Before that, Belk was working at the Heritage Foundation, a conservative think tank. I stopped doing this on the side, then this started paying more than the Heritage. So, so. That is amazing. <laughs> In case you're wondering what it takes to make it as a street musician, by Belk's standards, it's $200 a day per guy. So on average, the band is pulling in more than $1,000 a day. But that money doesn't come without a lot of hustle. We get out here about between 9 and 10. We stay out here by the White House to about 2, 2.30. Then we go out to Farragut North, or sometimes we go down to GW. They love us down there, too. <laughs> the band's day wraps up around 6.30 or 7 at night. That's a 10-hour day, six or seven days a week. 
but it's totally worth it, Belk says. Last year, more than 18 million Americans visited D.C., yet another record-breaking year for the nation's capital. Spread Love couldn't have picked a better time to join the street musician game. Belk is 45. He and the other members of the band grew up together in the D.C. region. Today, they all live in the city's Mount Vernon Square neighborhood. We started off young, six, seven years old and everything, and then we got on different bands, and then somehow we end up coming right back together. All the guys were raised in the church. Their denomination, United House of Prayer for All People, has a rich music tradition, and learning an instrument was a given. Plus, Belk's father played the trombone. I like the way the trombone looked, you know, so then I started playing around in it, playing around in it, and so, you know, I started playing this horn. Belk doesn't read music. He plays by ear. But that didn't stop him from learning lots of instruments. The sousaphone, the saxophone, French horn. He can even sit in on the skins when Spread Love's drummer, Styx, has to go out and run an errand. The band plays all kinds of music, but its bread and butter is New Orleans jazz and big band tunes with a little bit of DC go-go thrown in for some hometown flair. The crowd totally digs it. On this particular day, a school group does an impromptu line dance to the music, a kid poses with the band for a selfie, and lots of people drop money in the bucket. Belk says the band has also made some fans at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Oh, the White House, ah, I believe they love us. I believe the White House really loves us. Generally, everyone else does too. We only had one complaint. <laughs> Belk explains that some attorneys from a high-powered DC law firm have expressed their displeasure with the band. Apparently, they can hear the music from their offices, which sit across the street from the band's patch of sidewalk outside the US Treasury building. Some at the firm have tried to get rid of the band. Belk says one of the lawyers tried to pay them off with a couple hundred bucks. He also heard that there was talk of hiring a string quartet to poach Spread Love's spot. But Belk isn't all that fussed by the flap. I try not to pay it any attention. I mean, these smiles and tears that people give us, it's, it's priceless. So for the foreseeable future, Spread Love will be hustling its way around D.C., making the capital city sound a little bit jazzier. I'm Lauren Ober. Our next story is about ending a chapter in one's life and starting a new one. Chef Steve Batt has been feeding some of Washington's neediest residents for more than a decade. With his focus on fresh local ingredients, he's helped change how people think about cooking for the homeless. Now, after 14 years, Batt is hanging up his apron. Lauren Landau brings us the story from Miriam's Kitchen, a nonprofit providing case management, mental health treatment, and, of course, meals to individuals in need in the nation's capital. It's going on 7 a.m., and the streets of D.C. are still pretty quiet. A jogger here, a taxi there. 
If you want to see heavier traffic, swing by Miriam's Kitchen. Good morning. Welcome to Miriam's Kitchen. For breakfast today, we have waffles with fresh blueberries and whipped cream, home fries or grits, eggs, half with a spoon. You will never get a meal anywhere else like this in the District of Columbia. Sylvia Randolph has been a familiar face at Miriam's Kitchen for about two and a half years. She says not only are the full-course meals second to none, they're also eclectic. Here at Miriam's Kitchen, Randolph has eaten everything from crepes to Cornish hens. And she's even learned to like their vegetarian options. If you come to Miriam's Kitchen, you will be introduced to every style of green you can think of. Fresh produce like this hasn't always been on the menu. Volunteer Elaine Feister remembers when most of the food came in cans. I remember a lot of spaghetti. We used to do powdered milk. That was a task to, you know, somebody, a volunteer had to reconstitute the milk. That all changed when this guy came on board. Okay, 10 minutes, everybody, 10 minutes. Chef Steve Batt joined the team at Miriam's Kitchen 14 years ago. He had eight years in the restaurant biz under his belt and a master's in nonprofit management. What I wanted to do was try to transition out of the restaurants and use my skills for a bigger impact, for to do better good. He volunteered a few times and saw the perfect opportunity in Miriam's Kitchen. It was already a good organization. I mean, it was well known, it was doing good work, but it was more of a mom and pop kind of place with volunteers who had a great heart coming together and just playing with what, what they had at that time. There was some pushback when he said he wanted to swap canned fruit and veggies out for fresh ones. I remember when I interviewed with the board of directors, I said, you know what, I want to blow up the kitchen and rebuild it into a restaurant-style kitchen. And half the board was like, whoa, you know, things are going pretty well, you know, we're happy, we're not hiring you to you know, overhaul everything. And I'm like, just wait, just see. So they watched as Bat started forging relationships with Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, Costco, Cisco, and U.S. Foods. Donations also came straight from the source. Miriam's Kitchen has connections to hunters, fishermen, and farmers markets. Once you go to a market, you're talking to the farmers and you talk about what you do, and they're like, wow, I throw out so many tomatoes every week. Do you want to come and get them? And I'm like, yeah. Teams of volunteers collect the donations from their local markets and bring them back to the kitchen where they get to see the food come full circle. So they get excited and they can't wait to go again back to the market and get more ingredients. And when they go back to the farmers, they go, oh, you know what we used your tomatoes for? We made a great sauce and the clients loved it and blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden the farmer's like, oh, this week I have eggplant, I have so much eggplant. As for those early dissenters who are nervous about messing with a good thing, Bat says they changed their tune once they saw an increase in quality, but not in spending. Through donations and conscious shopping, costs actually dropped. I started, it was around $1.50 per meal. We dropped it down to a dollar pretty quickly, and now we're down to basically 25 cents to 50 cents a head um, for a breakfast meal, and sometimes zero cost at dinner. Bat is leaving Miriam's Kitchen next month. He's passing the spatula to Emily Hagel, who's the director of kitchen operations. Like Bat, Hagel has a professional culinary background, but she says she always hoped she'd be able to apply her culinary skills to people who are really hungry. I think everyone deserves a great meal, and that's kind of the philosophy that I have here at Miriam's, whether it be breakfast or dinner. I want to prepare a five or six item meal from scratch that a paying customer in a restaurant would want to pay for. Meanwhile, Bat is going into business. He says he'll still be making an impact by advising others on how to make socially responsible investments. He's looking forward to spending more time with his family 
and sleeping in. You know, I have two alarm clocks set for 4.30, and I think I might symbolically, you know, sledgehammer them. I'm Lauren Landau. Time now to hand the mic over to you and hear some of your comments and feedback on recent editions of Metro Connection. In response to our story about an inventor taking on the $600 billion industry built around treating chronic pain, our listener Maria writes, Better be careful. Whoever is earning that $600 billion is not going to be happy if you succeed. However, I hope you accomplish your new goal. And a few weeks back, we ran a piece about the Czech-turned Texan pastry known as the kolache and how it's making its way to D.C. Lucia wrote in to say, the photograph of the sweet treat on our website doesn't look right to her. She says it's not how we make it back home. We definitely do not put any additional sugar coat on the top. That would make it super sweet, and it's absolutely not that way back home. Please don't Americanize Czech traditional baking. Sell it as authentic. And finally, a Twitter user with the handle KevDog tweeted us this, I guess you could say, compliment. Metro Connection, you are the only people who can take a subject I have no interest in and make it interesting. If one of our stories gets you thinking, let us know. Our email address is metro at wamu.org, or you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. And that's Metro Connection for this week. If you missed part of today's show or you want to listen to past shows, subscribe to our weekly podcast. You can find a link on our website, metroconnection.org. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. We list all the music we use on metroconnection.org. While you're there, you can find links to our Twitter feed and our Facebook page so you can stay in touch with us all week long. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.